it's important to look at how we'll take ChatGPT uh, GPT as an example because we've been seeing all these changes throughout time now and we can see how better it is let's say three uh, four compared to the three version and so on and so forth so i'm i would i would expect five to be way better than four is and yeah. if you're saying about seven i don't even know what seven can build we talk about building i, I think if if you're smart enough, you can build an AI to build an entire product for you. Just depends how you want to look at it. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code TWIST. Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist. And Superside. Design and creative are crucial for growth. Tech companies like Shopify, Amazon, and Meta have found the perfect solution. Superside. Get $2,000 off with Superside's Startup Accelerator Package at superside.com slash twist. More important and elitist and that they understand business better than founders who create these things. So I am a little bit suspect. However, these things are actually valuable. They're val- any discussion about a business and analysis of a business while you're building it, if you're considering building it, is great because it lets you uh, build a mental model. And so we uh, did a demo of this product, and it got an incredible response from our audience. So I told producer Nick, by the way, did a great job reading the news uh, just yesterday on this podcast, uh, or this week on the podcast, depending on when we publish the show. He, uh, he did a great job. He'll be coming back to read more news. Uh, I said, hey, producer Nick, let's get this kid on the pod. Uh, this kid is Emmanuel Cucho. Am I pronouncing your name correct, Emmanuel? Yeah, that's, yeah. All right. So you saw our discussion of it. Uh, tell me everything. When did you come up with this idea? And uh, how long you've been working on it would be a good place to start. And why did you build it? Yeah, sure. So um, I came up with the idea based on the studies you're just mentioning, right? Um, most of these uh, things you see in the standard report are things you learn in the business school, which I've been through. <laughs> and uh, I realized that um, would be a great benefit for everybody to be able to get this information without having to go to business school. Mm. Uh, not only to learn how to do it, but I think it would be best if they would just be able to have at least a framework using all these mm. answers. And because we have LLMs at our fingertips these days, I came up with the idea, why don't we build a tool that allows entrepreneurs to generate all this content in a matter of minutes? Mm. and be able to go through it and try to validate their ideas before they start working on the actual product. Okay, so you have this idea, and yeah. people can pay 20 bucks a month for ChatGPT 4.0, or they can use Google's Bard, and they can go to one of the dozens of prompt sites that are out there. And these prompt sites will give you all kinds of um, tips on how to frame uh, a question or instructions, I would say, it's probably better. Uh, their prompts are basically instruction sets for ChatGPT. And there's a lot of different techniques. And I thought this would be a great way for us to introduce the audience uh, here at This Week in Startups to advanced prompt engineering. Because my gut tells me what you've done here is you looked at something like a SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T, SWOT analysis. Uh, and you said, how would I prompt ChatGPT to analyze the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of this business. That's SWAT. Am I correct in that you've uh-huh. spent 100 hours banging your head against the wall creating super prompts? 100%. I probably wouldn't say 100 hours, but probably if you think about optimizing everything to the point where it's now, we might get there. Yeah, um, okay. So you took 25, 50 hours of prompt engineering? Yeah, yeah, around Great. that. So explain where you started your prompts for something like SWAT. And I had given the example of, um, of a school that teaches you venture capital. Yeah. And that, I don't know if you saw the episode, I'm sure. Uh, your friends must have sent it to you. So I just, and it gave me a really nice SWAT analysis. What kind of prompts would, 
you know, a neophyte put in to try to, you know, say, you might just say, do a SWOT analysis on the following one sentence description of a business. But you got more granular, you probably said, Hey, what are the strengths of this business idea? Tell it to me, you know, as if I was an MBA or a, a business analyst at, you know, Gartner Group, I don't know how you did it. But so maybe talk a little bit about the evolution of your prompts, what worked, what didn't. 100%. So when we started was we, we I basically used every single uh, framework that I managed to get from my business school. Uh, hmm. And I just grabbed the business book and I'm like, okay, what do we need? We have a framework already built by people that worked on this before. So going back to SWOT was give me a SWOT analysis. What's the output of that? The output was quite brief, right? So going back to prompt engineering, I came up with the idea, hey, what if I say I'm a well-versed VC in, uh, with, uh, in, with over 20 years experience in ah. SaaS products? Um, mm. So how, how would that prompt look like? And we tried that. And again, it was a bit more complex, but it was not reaching to what exactly we're looking for. And we did a bit of engineering hacking, if you want to call it, uh, where we came up with the concept that LLMs are been, have been trained on all these books already. And mm. again, asking him to be a well-versed VC with 20 years experience, it doesn't mean that that VC in particular, whatever that instruction would mean for the, for the LLM would mean that he can cover everything. So mm. what we decided to do is to try to use the LLM with the information we have to improve on its own prompt. So uh, we so wait a second. You asked ChatGPT, "How do I make a better prompt?" Um, the easy way, yeah, probably at some point to some mm. to some degree on some aspects, not all of them. Some of them are a bit more complicated, and we've been working to give them, uh, let's say, for a particular thing. I'll talk about finances. I'm like, hey, finances. I'm actually interested in the following topics, and these topics are usually things you'll get from books. Like mm. before you validate your idea, you would need um, some sort of financial projection. You would need to understand how much money you will initially need to spend to be able to spin it um, from ground mm. up. Uh, would you require some funding or not? Um, mm. All these kind of criteria, as we mentioned them from the beginning, and then we were just looking on how we can continuously improve on that. And at some point, we got to, again, you can always improve on it more and more. And I think the more time you're going to spend in, in improving the prompt, probably the better it's going to be. Um, but at some point we decided that it's good enough and we now want to add more value for those, uh, for the money and be able to build on top of it. Um, so this is probably the main reason we didn't think about building an LLM in the first place. Cause we were like, there is already so many companies, mm. like big companies doing this that have been invested in, they have a lot of investment. They are investing. So you don't need to create a language model. Use ChatGPT four, I assume, or ChatGPT three point five, or are you using some other one. We use both three point five and four. Um, and why would you use both? Are you seeing better results, uh, or it's just uh, um, for for redundancy or cost or something? Technically, four it it would give better results most of the time, mm. but we also want to optimize on cost. It's important, like. Uh. Our goal is also to make this cheaper on a long run and be able to it. offer it to uh, everyone. Like our initial idea was to try to do this like a B2C thing, but mm -hmm. we had a lot of companies signing up from the standard uh, version. And when we decided to go with the, um, more, with the advanced features, we, we looked into being able to put them all through ChatGPT4. Listen, I work with super early stage companies at launch, like literally year zero, they haven't even incorporated yet. And then we hit the series A, people have 1000s of dollars in MRR, and they maybe they've only raised a couple of 100,000 before that series A, and they don't have their insurance set up. And in fact, we recently had a great startup that didn't have DNO, and we had to really stop everything because they were having board meetings, they were making massive decisions, there were legal issues. And they didn't have the basic DNO insurance that protects directors and officers. So we send them right to Embroker. Embroker is business insurance built specifically for startups. A single application will help your startup get four quotes for four lines of coverage in 15 minutes. Think about that four quotes, four lines, 15 minutes. 
And they're going to connect you with one of their expert brokers for unmatched service that goes beyond your policy. We use it at launch. It's easy peasy lemon squeezy. It's easy breezy. What more do I need to tell you? I use it. I love it. A lot of our startups use it. They love it. Try and broker today with the code twist and you'll get 10% off their startup package in broker.com slash twist. That's E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist and use the code twist for 10% off. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. What does it cost in terms of if I wanted to do one or per hundred analyses? Um, what, what does it wind up costing you in GPT-3, 5, slash 4 cost? Just roughly, is it a dollar? Is it 10 cents? Is it 1 cent? Um, it depends. First of all, it depends on a lot of criteria, right? We know that um, LLMs usually use some token methodology mm. in order to charge you. And usually that it's based on how big the prompt is, how big mm. the response is going to be, um, and also how, how complex it's going to become. At the beginning, um, was probably roughly a dollar. Uh, but oh. then we... To do the complete analysis, which uh, was a lot of prompts, I'm assuming. Yes. And then we look on how we can optimize that even more without mm. trying to... Uh, Effect uh, by any means the actual prompt. Like we, the response is really important, but we and we don't want to affect the quality of the report. But we want to be able to give this um, as cheap as possible. Right. Um, so yeah, that's well, a dollar is pretty cheap, and you've got it down to less than that now. And then I just saw is it Claude the other one that just came out? That's one quarter of the price or one tenth of the price. Have you played? Is it Claude? Is that the name of the one? That, yeah, Claude too. Yeah. Yeah. So Claude just came out. I'm assuming as a, a founder in the AI space, you immediately went and checked it out. What did, uh, what was your initial impression of the new Claude? Is it called Claude 2.0 or something? What is it called? I, I think it's just Claude 2. I, I don't think Claude it's Claude 2. Okay. Um, so maybe to the best of your ability, like, yeah, describe it. It seems that, at least from a business perspective, it seems that it, it can do some things a little bit better than GPT mm. does it at the moment. But this I is Anthropics, right? This is the company Anthropics. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I think, again, it, it all depends on, on how you're going to look at the entire product mm -hmm. on a long run. And why do I say that is if you want to just build a prompt that would deliver you a certain content, probably you'd be able to do it at some point with most of them. Because I'm, I'm, again, I'm using a logic assumption right now. I don't have anyone in OpenAI or Anthropics to to confirm that to me, but I'm guessing we all use the same mm. information to train all these uh, LLMs, right? So, yeah, uh, that, yeah, and that's a controversy in and of itself. So, you start this business, and um, I guess the criticism of some of these businesses built on ChatGPT4, or the criticism of businesses like this, is, oh, can I just use it directly in ChatGPT4? So, you and I both know that there's a lot of accoutrement and features you can build on top of the ChatGPT responses that ChatGPT will never do. So maybe you could explain why you're convinced this is a good business idea and that people will want a more verticalized solution that you're creating with bells and whistles and details that maybe aren't available in ChatGPT. Or, or do you think an, an AI eventually is going to get so good that ChatGPT before six or seven or Claude six or seven or Bard six or seven are going to just do a better job than any startup that gets, you know, builds a wrapper around the stuff? That's a really valid concern and a great question. Uh, I think it's, it's important to look at how we'll take ChatGPT uh, GPT as an example because we've been seeing all these changes throughout time now and we can see how better it is, let's say, three, uh, four compared to the three version and so on and so forth. So I'm, I, would, I would expect five to be way better than four is. And yeah. if you're saying about seven... I don't even know what seven can build. We talk about building. I, I think if, if you're smart enough, you can build an AI to build an entire product for you. Just depends how you want to look at it. But I think you get, you'll get to a point where you could build, they call it GPT agents. Probably mm. you've heard about it. Where yes. Explain to the audience GPT agents. Yeah. So GPT agents would be, uh, a GPT agent would be. Uh, a piece of software that would allow you to instruct uh, uh, GPT uh, different GPT, different instructions based on the agent. So you'd say, "Hey, I need I need a developer. 
then you'll instruct that agent to be a developer and act as one. Then you'll be, mm-hmm. hey, I need someone to make some research for me. But then it'll be how obviously you would need to build on top of it more things like I need information from search engines. We know that at the moment that really difficult to get. So you'd build on top of that to be able to allow the agent to be able to get that information from you from a search engine, then feed that back into the LLM and be able to give you a better or more accurate answer. Yeah. And so this concept of role prompting is saying, hey, you're an MBA uh, or you're a teacher at uh, INSEED or Harvard Business School. Um, You've studied the works of and you give a list of the works of 10 you know classic books uh on uh, business um analyze this business through the frameworks of these 10 people you could actually start to get really interesting things going here and um that is something that is going to be really interesting you didn't feed it in um like the works of major authors or thinkers and and no business cases because harvard has all these case studies they take those very serious um stanford has uh, case studies they're considered like very important ip it'll be amazing if stanford creates an ai or harvard creates an ai of all those case studies and then they say hey go through these case studies and use the, what you've learned there as an analysis for this but you got to assume that ChatGPT sold that i think OpenAI probably stole all that stuff already I wouldn't know to say, uh, but well, they yeah, did an you, open crawl of the web. It <laughs> seems. I mean, we'll we'll get this information from the lawsuits eventually, but they clearly sure. went out. If it's answering these questions so well, yeah, I mean, it probably went and took the full works of all of these authors. And then the other thing that's happened. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Is you know, on the web, if there's a great book like Good to Great by Jim Collins, there have been ten thousand blog posts, articles, summaries, cliff notes, etc spark notes about that book there's been ten thousand podcasts about that so if you were to read those those might be better than the source material because they have a level of analysis on top of them so the truth is even if you wanted to protect the ip of jim collins's works uh good to great etc um you would have all the people who have analyzed it and done fair use criticism of it that you could just leverage that so it's kind of interesting how this is all unfurling. You're spot on. Um, and I think probably before we see more action on the uh, GPT side, probably we'll see companies like MindJourney being, being able to explain how they design all these images on the spot, you know, knowing that certain prompts would actually even show you uh, different copyrights material from where they got inspired from. And this is how everything started in the first place. When they were generating all these images, they were seeing that there are some watermarks in them. And they're like, it, it makes no sense. How can, mm. how can it be a watermark if it's generated yes. by the AI, right? It's hilarious. Here's my favorite part. Um, uh, and I, if you missed the episode last time, I'll just share my screen here really quick. So this was when I asked the question. And I said, uh, a school to train people to be venture capitalists. So um, I'm I have a lot of people who want to come work for me for free. And I decided um, I'm going to create a school to become an associate, basically. To get a job as an associate will be the, and it's basically a, a Kaufman Fellows competitor, if you know that program, uh, yeah. which is $80,000 for two years. So my idea is to make this like 25K for a year, full time. And you come work in person with me at my new uh, incubator. And maybe I'll have 10 people do it. And all you do is work with me and my team directly, meeting. 15 companies a week, sitting in on the investment team meeting, and then I'll have 10 people paying me to go through 15 companies each a week. That's 150 companies a week. This is some like Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn stuff, like paint the fence. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You know that story? Are you aware of that uh, one? I No. There's a great story in America. I think it's Huck Finn. Um, he's painting a fence. He's got chores to do. And these kids come along and they're eating some apples and uh, one of them's got like a toy. And uh, they come up and say, what are you doing, Huck Finn? And he says, uh, or Tom Sawyer, I can't remember which one. And this is like an adventure novel for kids. The, and so he says to the person with the apple, uh, yeah, this is the most fun you can have on a summer day. If you'd like to whitewash the fence and paint it, uh, it's one, the cost is one apple. And he says, oh, is it really a lot of fun? He's like, it's the most fun I've ever had. And he gives him the apple, kid starts painting the fence. The other kid has a toy, he says, yeah, this is the most fun. If you let me play with your toy while you're washing the fence, I'll give it back to you after, but you can wash the fence. The, then all of a sudden he's sitting there eating an apple, playing with the toy, and they're doing his work. 
And the lesson there is like framing, like, hey, you know, this could be drudgery, it could be a chore, or it could be a lot of fun. And it is actually a lot of fun to paint, right? So, um, yeah, that's the uh, story of like Huck Finn, etc. So anyway, this is my idea. And then here's what your report said. Venture Capitalist Training School, Comprehensive Analysis Feedback, Industry Insights, SWOT Analysis. And it said strengths, unique business idea with limited competition in the market. That's true. There's really only one I can think of that actually is a school for venture capital. Uh, yeah, Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain, uh, not Huckman. Um, unique business idea with limited comp- competition in the market. It's true. Tailored training program can address specific skill gaps in the industry. That's very true. Like you went to business school. Did they teach you anything about, you know, startups and investing in companies or evaluating business ideas? Or was it kind of like abstract? It usually... I guess, again, I speak from my experience. It depends yeah. where you go to business school. Uh, uh, but where'd you go? I went in the UK. Uh, so, so which the, one? Uh, Canterbury Research University. Oh, cool. Um, so we basically, they, they start with some uh, basics. And mm. usually they try to bring different people that made already companies and startups mm. to talk about all these things and how they validated all the books or all the frameworks from the books throughout their yeah. businesses in order to achieve that. Great. Um, potential to establish strong industry partnerships for internships and job placement. That's true. Um, and it, you know, it's like really um, an amazing analysis and it was tight because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you give it a very confined, um, give me a 10 word answer, give me a 15 word answer maximum. Is that right? That's really difficult to tell LMs because uh. we have to explain everyone that LLMs don't really understand it, like they don't have an understanding of exactly what you mean. So sometimes if you say, can you write me a thousand words essay? He might, he might make close to that, but it doesn't mean he's going to do a thousand words. Usually yeah. we don't specify certain things, but we specify what we want to see. So in marketing mm. strategy, we want to see the certain points which are mentioned with, uh, within our prompts. And so, uh, Recommended marketing platforms, game changing. It was just a really great analysis. But the best part was it said books to guide you along the way. Venture deals by my friend Brad Feld. Uh, the Lean Startup by my friend Eric Reese, both friends of the show. And then finally, Angel, my book. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty clever. That So I guess at the end, you say, hey, what book should the person read? Or or you say, like, what topics is are mentioned here? And then search for further reading? How did you get uh-huh. that prompt? So... When we were building the standard, uh, the, the standard report, I, I, th- I thought it's really important people, when they start any venture, I would always recommend start with also a book. While you build this, try to read something new. Uh-huh. And what we were looking at is, I basically went to what the prompt does is based on the prompt, we want to be able to deliver you books that are specific to that prompt you wrote. Mm. So if we're going to write, um, I don't know, Going back to what Sunny was saying, we uh, artisan water from icebergs. I know he, yeah. he mentioned ice cubes, but I know that there is a company that builds that that does artisan water from icebergs. They will try to feed up information about people mm-hmm. that are uh, that are basically doing things with uh, businesses with uh, water with I don't mm-hmm. know bottling water. What does it take? Yeah, and how would you do that? And we wanted to be able to feed that as a validation of someone that actually does it. Mm. It's absolutely fascinating. If you're a SaaS or services company that stores customer data in the cloud, then you need to be huh? SOC 2 compliant, you knew that, from a third party. And you need that third party to close big deals. And if you want to get compliant easier and faster, you need to use Vanta, V-A-N-T-A. Vanta makes it so easy for you to get and renew your SOC 2. On average, Vanta customers are SOC 2 compliant in just two to four weeks. Compare that to three to five months without Vanta. And Vanta can save you hundreds of hours of manual work and up to 85% of compliance costs. This is a total no-brainer. And Vanta does more than just SOC 2 compliance. They also automate up to 90% compliance for GDPR, HIPAA, and more. You can't afford to lose out on major customers. We all know that. Listen, it's a hard year. Last year was hard. You can't lose those major customers because you don't have your compliance dialed in. Just work with Vanta. Get your compliance automated and tight and tight is right. Lock down those big deals. Here's the best part. Vanta is going to give you $1,000 off. That's 10 hundies. Get $1,000 off at vanta.com slash twist. That's vanta.com slash twist for $1,000 off your SOC 2. So you got a couple of hundred people to pay you 20 bucks a month for this already? Yes. Amazing. So you're off to the races. 
Great. How did you, um, just to talk about marketing here, mm-hmm. uh, listen, you got picked up on this week in startups. I'm not sure where Sunny found it, but you somehow got the flywheel going here. Um, how did you get people aware of the product and to try it? How did you get those first 100 customers? Because the first 10 and the first 100 are the hardest, of course. Uh-huh. 100%. When we, when we built the initial standard report, um, there were no costs attached. So you, you mm. couldn't, there was no pricing model. There was nothing you could have paid for. Everything was for free. And the reason we did that is there is only as much information I can fit in within the AI, but what I'm looking for is actual feedback coming from people. Mm. So we looked online at different things. And again, I've been trying some startups before and I have some advertising experience. So I I just looked at the platforms that I found to be really useful for feedback. Mm. And somehow we came up with the idea that Reddit would be a good start. Okay. Mostly because people might be a bit more direct on Reddit than other platforms. Yes. And you're referring to the fact that on Reddit, people are brutal. <laughs> exactly. Uh, trust me, if you've ever been to the uh, unofficial all in uh, subreddit, it is disgusting <laughs> and brutal. Uh, really so, savage. Like, just horrible. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult audience to deal with, but. I think that's what intrigued me. I yes. wanted to get difficult people to tell me how bad it is. How stupid how you are. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I wanted to get that. I wanted to Did they just... get your photo and tell you that you're ugly and that you should shave? Or what they... That's what they did yeah. immediately. They're like, you're too fat. Uh, uh, and you're... <laughs> uh, no, it's hilarious. And so they, they savaged you. What was the best feedback you got during the savaging on your sub... And which subreddit did you go to? AI subreddit or startups, entrepreneurship? Only entrepreneurship startups, uh, oh. sorry, entrepreneurship uh, subreddit. So yeah. there are a few of them um, yeah. that I tried. Um, probably one that we got um, a lot of interesting feedback was business ideas. There is subreddit just for that, uh, where just people test things and try to get, like people just come with their ideas and say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to test this. What do you guys think? And most of the time, you'll get actual good insights. People actually spend time to, to read that and, and give you really, really good feedback. And we got a lot of feedback that we didn't expect we're going to get right away. Some people were like really stoked with the product. Some people are like, hey, I can go there and replicate this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm glad. I'm, uh, that was the whole point. I want, mm. I want to expose this so people can be more knowledgeable about business, mm. which was my main goal from the beginning. Um, and uh, basically, we started getting, I guess, 20. In the first week, we had like 20 signups a day, which was great. Like, I was hoping that if we hit 30 signups a day, I'll be, the, I'll be really, really happy. <laughs> um, and we, we did that for like two weeks, I guess. And then mm. at some point, someone um, on social media picked this up. And I remember waking ah. up in the morning and it we got like 500 signups in a day. Amazing. And I was like, yeah, it was, was, was great. But then what we're looking to see what we can do next, because I was interested to get those people's feedback. Not like it's amazing they can use the product and they can test it, but how they feel about it, how can we get people to mm-hmm. give us their opinions? And um, basically that's why we decided, hey, we, let's, let's open a Twitter. Let's, let's have uh, ways for people to reach out to us. Like, we didn't know and there's how a cool there's a cool business idea subreddit i see that's where you posted we just did a quick yeah. search um while you were talking and so that i didn't know that subreddit exists i just joined it um but i love that idea um and then there's entrepreneurship right along wow uh, yeah. yeah there's some good um subreddits i've been in the entrepreneurship and the startups one uh it's pretty cool yeah i mean i tried to post on some of them but as you're saying everyone is brutal there uh i i got removed several times and because i Oh. Yeah, because I respect everyone, I obviously I was not trying to push again. So when mm. we managed to get, um, when we understood how every community works, we then started reaching out to moderators, say, hey, would you mind if we post this thing? Is this something you guys would find interesting for your community? Actually, with business ideas, at some point, I even reached out to their uh, to the owner and I said, hey, I know people are posting here ideas. Would you not? Would you think it's useful if I write the Reddit bot that would pick up their ideas? Put it, spin it into an LLM and then give them the report for free. I'll do that for free. Just let me build it. And um, after, diff- after some discussions, they were happy for me to build that and I actually did it. Um, so at the moment, I think it should be still live there. And if you yeah. write the prompt, they, they would 
they would give so you. So where, where do you where, where do you think you're going to go with this? Who you you who, for the first hundred customers? Is it entrepreneurs? You said businesses were buying it to do analysis, so that's kind of cool. So it's strategic business people are use buying it for their company for twenty bucks a seat per month or something. Uh, how much are you charging? What's your plan to roll this out? So we have two uh, pricing plans. One is obviously the subscription that. Uh, mm. I wouldn't say most, yeah, most of people are using it, but mm. we have half customers that are subscribed and the other half are pay as you go. So you can right. always just generate a standard report for free. And if what you read, it's useful to you, mm. you can just click on one of those other advanced features and just convert that into an advanced report. Mm. And that would be just 10 bucks. It's Love not, it. you don't need to subscribe to anything. You can just get that. Um, and, and use it as, as you like. Uh, I mean, I just love the idea of also having tools around the results. So if in the advanced version, I'm just going to jam with you here for a minute. When I looked at the results, I immediately had questions in each of the subsections and I had feedback to give it like, I don't believe that this is correct. Or like, you know, who are the competitors to this? Or how would a person go about learning to be a venture capitalist, right? Um, if they didn't, if the school didn't exist, right? So I think there's like jumping off points where if I had a team of five people in my venture firm, or if I had a team of five people in my strategic planning group, you know, at my bigger company, a mid-sized company, or our innovation group at a corporation, SAP, or, you know, Salesforce had some innovation group, um, they could really be doing this, keeping it private, but then um, having comments around the results and then, you know, kind of dipping into second and third level prompts and threads. So I see it as like a jumping off point, you know, each of those sections you could kind of keep jumping off of. So I see you almost as like um, a brainstorming notion or coda for business ideas. That's like single purpose for that. So I really thought it was interesting um, and uh, a really good start. So I believe you can get this to a thousand people. And I think there's corporate people who would pay, you know, $1,000 a month for a corporate account, $12,000. Um, and uh, I think you'll get there pretty quick, actually. Who's the, do you have any big customers like that who are paying 10k a year? Um, uh, no, not, not yet. Okay. And to be honest, I would need to look into all the legalities before we can manage to talk about any companies that actually use the product. Um, what do you mean by that? I mean, purely oh, 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 on the show on the show here. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'm not asking you to uh, name the company. I was like, yeah, no. I'm just curious if a company yeah, you yes. should never disclose that without them getting giving explicit permission to be on your exactly page, exactly on your, on your customer page and give you a testimonial but i do think there's i think like giving out the free one free is great um and uh giving out one free is great um and then going from there 100 percent. so uh going back to the advanced features you you mentioned something earlier i want to point on that you said that you're looking to some of those things and you are not sure those things are accurate and I agree with you. Uh, yeah. I can take uh, one of the so at the at the on the top of the website on the navbar you there is a thing called report examples where all mm. those reports have been are run by uh, us. They are not public reports generated by any of our users or customers. None of their reports are being published anywhere. So all these are, are these are these reports are best for individuals to come in and kind of test the waters before to have to pay anything. And uh, I'll, I'll take an example report here. We, some month, like I think two weeks ago, we did one for um, a 2,000 square meter terrain outside of Strasbourg suitable for go-kart tracking. Huh. Um, and, and the beauty about that is in finances, it, it came up with an estimate amount of $237,000 to be able to open such a karting. Uh, but huh. because uh, I love... I love karting, I love carts and, and cars in general. Um, I kind of invested some time to figure out every single detail of it to the point where is it how accurate these numbers are. Mm. And it all depends on a lot of criteria such as, hey, we talk about, let's say, facility setup and construction here says it's $150,000, which would include the track spectator area and the snack bar. Hmm. Uh, a spectator area could be like 20 people or it could be 200 people. Yes. Right? So You need more specific details there, yes. Exactly. Yeah. And this is where we realize that, hey, as, if you feed as much information as possible to the prompt, it's going to take that under consideration. So it's gonna, when it's going to build the financial stats, it's going to think about all these things. So when I did again a report where I said, hey, I know that a kilometer of tarmac could cost 
X amount of money in Europe, especially close to Strasbourg, because again, there's no point to bring Tarmac from the US unless it's extremely cheap. Uh, we realized that it, it might be a bit more expensive. So in the end, the $237,000 was like the minimum that uh, anyone would need if they want to, if they decide to build uh, a track, basically. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, this is gonna, this is, I mean, if you think about everything MBAs do, um, a language model is perfectly suited for that, any kind of consultant. Um, and it's going to give you ideas much faster than you can ideate. It's going to give you all the corners and pockets of stuff you may not know. Um, and it's going to tell you where to look for things, right? And, you know, just even putting in a business plan and saying, what did I miss could be amazing, you know? 100%, I totally agree. Yeah. All right, let's talk Turkey here. You seem pretty smart. Uh, and uh, I'm an angel investor, you may have heard. Uh, <laughs> you, you've raised no money for the startup. This is just like a side hustle project. Is it even incorporated? Uh, it's not. Uh, we no, okay. All right. So yeah, you got a, you got a friend working with you on it or something? It's just a couple of you, or what's the story? It's three of us. Um, two of us, basically engineers, and the other one is a marketeer. That's all Love the communication. It. Three thing. people's great. Uh, three co-founders, great. So uh, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to work with you on this product because I think it's meaningful and it's kind of in my wheelhouse help you promote it, uh, have you come to our accelerator, uh, give you 100 grand, uh, sign the paperwork today or tomorrow, whenever you and to get a Delaware C corporation. And uh, let's build this into a unicorn. Uh, is that something that might interest you? 100%. Okay, great. So when we get off the call, uh, I'll put you in touch with Jackie Deegan and Andre. And uh, they'll tell you about the accelerator when the next class is happening. And as quick as we can get you going, we'll do a little mini diligence, make sure that uh, you didn't steal the coat. And you set up For a company sure. and you do IP assignments and everybody gets their equity, all the standard due diligence things you can just put into um, your chat GPT for what should come up in diligence. We'll give you a list of all the things we'll ask for. Um, but I really love what you're doing. And uh, I think it's really fantastic. The launch accelerator is virtual right now. We do one week in person at the beginning and the end, like, and uh, eventually we'll go back in person when I get the space set up in San Mateo here. But uh, for now, I love what you're doing. I like to place bets and I go with my gut. When I saw this, I thought the product design was exceptional, well-conceived, and you've got product velocity, and you've got multiple founders, and uh, you clearly have uh, some sort of uh, what I'll call the X factor as a founder. I think you're pretty clever. So let's see if we can consummate this uh, as quick as possible before this episode gets published and other people start making you offers. I need to be the first investor in companies. That's my mission. I want to be the I've first fund in and the first fund to 10% ownership. Those are my two goals for our fourth venture fund. Uh, Okay, I really so appreciate it. Thank you we'll so a, much. We'll do, a, we'll do a virtual handshake here. Pending due diligence. There it is. Give me your virtual handshake. Okay, wait. I got to do it the other way. Hold on. Here we go. Virtual handshake deal. No, that way. Here we go. Now we're doing oh, a virtual sorry. handshake. <laughs> no, no, you got it. That was it. We, we did the left and the right. So that's our virtual handshake. Uh, pending due diligence. And, you know, if, if it's not a fit for you and you decide you don't want to do it as a business, of course, you can back out. But this is a 100K bet I like to make. I feel frisky right now. I got Launch Fund 4 money. I'm investing. I'm trying to do build big businesses. If you want to hear about Launch Fund 4 and you're listening to this podcast, uh, we filled up all the accredited slots, uh, but we do have slots for qualified purchasers and I'm spending the next two months meeting with family offices, et cetera, launch.co slash memo. You can read my deal memo. In fact, you should read my deal memo and then you should run it through your system and see, is this a good idea for, I mean, this is where it gets really interesting. You could actually put in there, uh, not just an idea for businesses. You could say, hey, what's a good idea for an investment firm? You know, subsectors sub of businesses and those might have different analyses that I'm unaware of. Like, I'm sure the, the, the guy, the famous guy from Yale, um, who sadly passed away, the Yale guy probably has like a really good framework for how to analyze venture firms and fund managers. It'd be really good to put that in. Um, all right, listen, we've talked for, gosh, 40 minutes here. I'll let you get back to it. You're in Spain, huh? Yes. My favorite country. Spain and Tokyo. Oh, man. I, I love both those places. Oh, just Japan, generally. I haven't been it's to Spain in years. Yeah, just let me know if you want to come around. It's just really hot at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, maybe when it's 80 degrees, not 105. Uh, but man, I love Galicia and Barcelona, man. I actually got to take my kids there. They haven't been there yet. And I want them to experience having supper at 10 p.m. and drinking hot chocolate at... What's that thick hot chocolate you guys do over there? What's it called? Um, it might just be called hot chocolate. But you know that thick hot chocolate they make and you get it at like midnight? It's all these old ladies going out for thick hot chocolate in Barcelona in the Rambla. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they really have it 
here ah. in Canada. It's probably because it's hot most of the time. It's not yeah. as hot as there, but like even in what are December. Those, um, what are those like lobsters slash shrimp crustacean that have the really long claws? Lagostinos? Crab? It's not a... They kind of look like lobsters. Yeah, langos- it might be langostinos. Yeah. Really long. Yeah, I love those. When I was in Galicia, um, you know, and I went to the shore and there were all these great restaurants on the shore. You know, shortly from the, away from there, and man, I had the best cheese plate of my life and some of the best seafood. I love Spain. Mm. Yeah, it's I, I, really I need a speaking gig in Spain. Somebody uh, get a speaking gig going in Spain for me, please. <laughs> All right, talk to you later. Uh, this has been this week in startups, uh, and we'll talk soon. Bye. If you are listening to this podcast, you care about innovation, right? You're listening to Twist this week in startups, and the startup sector changes constantly. But one thing does not change, and that is the importance of world class design. In the past. You either worked with like some old school stodgy ad agency and boy, was that expensive or you go to a freelance marketplace. Okay. Things can get really messy there. The work is to say hit or miss might be graceful. So let me tell you about a third choice, the better choice. It's super side. Super side is the new way to get great designs done quickly. They call it CAS, creative as a service, C-A-A-S. This is such a great idea. It's a fully managed end-to-end service and it's completely hassle-free. Here's how you use it. You subscribe and then you get an amazing dedicated design team built specifically for you. And you get access to a platform that makes it so easy to request designs and have them delivered quickly. Superside only hires the top 1% of designers from around the world. And they keep them engaged because they have to work on so many different creative projects from ad creative to landing pages, motion design, custom illustrations. It is amazing what they do over there. So you're going to save 2000 a month on Superside's startup accelerator package superside.com slash twist that's super side.com slash twist to get too large off of your package well done superside next up blackbird ventures samantha wong gives a talk on finding and identifying up-and-coming startup markets live from angel summit thank you everyone and thanks jason for inviting me um uh, as you mentioned my name's sam wong i'm a general partner at blackbird ventures and the title of my talk actually was changed last minute to temporarily unpopular investing in Australia and New Zealand. And uh, after Mars talk this morning, I actually think I want to change it to be there and develop insights. That's essentially the flavor of what I'm going to talk about uh, today. First up, why should you care about these two little islands in the Pacific? It's a very good question. I'm just coming after the guy who did Snowflake Series B. I'm just before the guy who did Hotmail. So I find myself asking uh, that too. But I find Brad's last uh, talk um, quite instructive because I would argue that investing in Australia and New Zealand over the last decade, and I think there's, there's still some way to go in it, is, is the epitome of uh, anti-consensus investing. And would love to um, explain the learnings that we've had building Blackbird over the last 11 years. So let's start um, with a little context. Australian and Kiwi companies over the last 20 years um, have built uh, enterprise value of over $126 billion. Hands up if you recognise some of the logos on, on this page. And did you know that they were Australian and Kiwi founded? But, well, it's, it's a fairly knowledge, knowledgeable um, crowd, but um, you're the anom- anomaly. Most people don't know that there's all this economic activity happening in these uh, little islands in the Pacific. And I think um, being underestimated or being out of the purview of, of where most of the investment minds are, are is actually a really great strategy. And I think for a bunch of you in this room, you know, there are probably some juicy markets hidden in plain sight that you too could be uh, taking advantage of. And, and that's what I'd like to encourage you to think about today. And the reason why, I believe, is that too much competition impacts returns. When there's too much capital chasing too small a set of quality companies, returns get averaged away. And and this is a business about alpha. According to PitchBook, there are 10,000, over 10,000 venture firms in the US and almost 1,000 seed deals done a quarter. And I actually think that's probably an underestimation. Um, and you're going against folks like, like Ma, the besties. And so that's really effing hard. It's significantly less hard, I think, if you try and find a pocket that fewer people are, are fishing in. And that's been super successful for us, for friends of mine as well in other areas of the world like Eastern Europe, you know, early bird, east, um, super successful, LATAM, Monashis, Kazakh, 
Um, and, and there are probably uh, other ways to think about this too, not, ge- not just uh, geographic, but also sector specific. A little bit about Blackbird. Um, we're a firm with $7 billion in assets under management. We're 11 years old. We have about 50 staff now across Australia and New Zealand. Um, and we're probably best known for doing the seed investments in Canva, Zooks, CultureAmp and Safety Culture. And the thing that all of those companies have in common is that they were founded by Australians. So that's our mandate. Uh, Australians and New Zealanders, wherever in the world they might be. Basically, everything that uh, I believe about venture is really captured in this chart. This is the performance of Blackbird Fund One over the first 10 years of its life. This is the power law kind of personified um, where the aqua... Uh, bar is the performance of Canva. Um, Truly, you know, a power law story. But what I think is the incredible thing is that even without Canva, you take out the aqua chart, this is still a a seven times uh, gross multiple fund, which is awesome performance. Why is that? That's weird, right? Like why would one fund like capture, you know, that much performance? And The answer, I think, is a lack of competition. Like there is something to be said for being the only game in town or one of the only games in town uh, at that point. And so I am just kind of obsessed now about uh, trying to harness um, and harvest these sorts of uh, fund one opportunities over and over again. The thing about uh, being early is that you can't be too early. Um, And Australia in the 2013 to 2015 era uh, was just perfect. Not too early, not too late. So I want to share a few things that you might think about looking for um, that might indicate you're you're right at that that point of time. So the first, obviously, is you have to have an undersupply of capital. This chart shows uh, the VC uh, deal value between 2010 and 2020. You can see in 2010... It was only 200 million of investment. 2011 went even lower to 100 million. And this includes growth stage and late stage venture investing. The curious thing, though, is if you were on the inside of those ecosystems right at this, this early era, it was getting really exciting. Atlassian had just taken, uh, well, it didn't actually take external capital because um, it was highly profitable. So it was an employee secondary. Axel did a $60 million employee secondary at a 400 mil valuation in 2010. Canva was founded in 2013 and did a a chunky Series A on very, very low revenue in in 2015. Atlassian IPO'd, uh, I think it was late 2015, maybe early 2016. And then, obviously, the the word got out and uh, deal sizes uh, grew quite significantly. And now there are many multi-hundred million dollar funds uh, in Australia. So um, the lack of capital plays out in a couple of ways that I think are quite interesting. So the first is Blackbird Fund One has a very low loss ratio, obviously without sacrificing returns. So we have a 20% loss ratio in that fund, which is odd because you would expect a successful fund to have sort of 50 to 60% loss ratios. And that has led me to think that perhaps when you have uh, the luxury of choice, you, you can pick, you can choose, you actually choose better. It's a working hypothesis at the moment. Uh, the second is um, uh, entry valuations. And entry valuations, you know, do matter to performance. And in our first fund, the average valuation for a pre-seed or a seed stage company was um, $4.2 million. There are, however, always exceptions. Uh, Canva was pricey even then. Uh, it was an 8 mil cap uh, for a pre-product PowerPoint stage company. Uh, and Zooks also was a uh, pre-product, still is kind of pre-product, stage company at a 40 mil cap. So always be willing to make exceptions. So the second thing that's really important, I think, um, for that Goldilocks stage market is you need lighthouse companies, but none yet that are so successful that they've really attracted the hordes of global investors and attracted a lot of competition. And I think some indicia that you could look for are sort of valuations and exits that kind of seem, they're they're kind of successful, but they they look a bit meek or meager compared to what you're used to in Silicon Valley. So I mentioned the Atlassian round, that 400 mil valuation. That was a huge deal in Australia in in 2010. That wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't make a twist headline probably uh, in, in Silicon Valley. 
And then a few years ago, uh, Vend, which is a point-of-sale software company, sold to Lightspeed for half a billion dollars in New Zealand about four or five years ago. And that was a huge deal. Um, and there was a sequent uh, exit uh, um, for a billion dollars in New Zealand a few years ago. But these are really big deal in the ecosystem, and they're very important for ecosystem development. You get uh, these lighthouse founders that other uh, the next generation of founders want to be like, and it's just this biological need, right, that – um, some very small proportion of the population want to top the next best person, you know, out there. And so you have to have these icons in the ecosystem that other people want to learn from, be proximate to, and then beat, essentially. Um, and also they play a very important role as well in mentoring and, and angel investing. And so, you know, around that sort of early 2010s era, um, you did have a bunch of these lighthouse companies. Atlassian was kind of um, the, the probably best known one in this room, but there are a bunch of others and, and the same in New Zealand. So trade me is like the eBay equivalent um, or sort of directory for everything kind of business. And some alumni of that went on to found Zero, which is a $6 billion uh, uh, accounting SaaS software company. And some of those went on to found Vend. And so you, you, you sort of start to see this um, circle of life happening within the ecosystem. Very important to look for that. And then the probably other thing is, is obviously you, you need to have a density of entrepreneurial talent. And again, I think this can show up in different ways in different markets. Um, this is a really ugly slide, but, but basically it's, it's showing that, you know, Australia has a lot of uh, small business. And obviously we hope to invest in some small businesses that become big businesses, but it's a good starting point that your, your country has an um, appetite for risk um, for taking a bet on yourself as a starting point. Again, some small percentage of those, you know, three decimal places, et cetera, will hopefully start a startup and have the ambition uh, to do something. And then very highly educated or skilled people in, in your ecosystem. So about 48% of Australians hold a tertiary degree, so that, that's good raw, raw material to start with. The other thing I would say is small businesses can be maybe a turnoff in some uh, in some regions. In Australia, we love it. Most of our founders, you know, had a small business skeleton in their cl closet. Most people know, you know, Canvas started as a yearbook business. Safety Culture started as a PDF checklist business before it was a mobile app. And Zooks's founder and CultureAmp's founder, they were they essentially ran, ran agencies, successful ones, before they went on. To, to start um, startups. So we love that. And I think probably separate to that is, you know, certainly when I was growing up in Australia, you know, we, we looked up to people for better or worse, like Rupert Murdoch, who founded Fox, you know, at least it was a, it was a globally recognized brand. There was um, um, a precedent for global success for people from my country. Um, and you could say the same for the founders of Westfield, Transfield, Macquarie Bank. So that's super important as well. And the third thing, which I think um, I would love to spend a bit more time uh, digging into, I'm um, doing research on, but the global tech companies have R&D centers all around the world. They're not just here in California. And working out exactly where they are and then the talent that is uh, coming out of those is a very, I think, compelling strategy. And few people know this like, little bit of trivia, but um, one of the key pieces of technology that went into Google Maps uh, was actually founded by a four-person team in Sydney. It was a company called Where To that kind of got rolled up together. And that four-person team became a 60-person team that worked on Google Wave. I don't know if anyone here remembers Google Wave. RIP Google Wave was awesome. But it, that became a predecessor to, to Google Docs and really pioneered some of this like in-the-browser in collaboration um, that ultimately made a product like Canva possible. So the kind of the um, the dudes on the left were the were, were the Google Maps and Google Wave folks, um, and made it to the um, photo on the right, and are still really really critical parts of the technical team at Canva. So um, and I could probably draw lines to about a dozen startups um, in Australia uh, that have come out of this um, Google R and D center. There are thousands of engineers working on Google products there. And you can see a sort of similar thing happening now in Melbourne um, where Square has had an R&D centre for quite a while and a bunch of those are, are spawning their own um, startups. Um, Israel obviously is a really you know, good example of this with Intel Capital and IBM having R&D centres there for quite a while. So, you know, pull out the map, start working out where all these R&D centres are because I think that they're going to be very um, interesting places to hunt. So, onto the 
learnings um, part, we our bias is is just to invest in Australian New Zealand founders. They could be anywhere in the world, but that's still a total addressable market of 35 million people. It's not big. So um, for that reason, we've always had a really strong bias for big ambition and founders who are tackling global markets from the very beginning. And that has taken us to um, invest in some, some awesome um, areas. We're generalists. We have to be because we're addressing such a small uh, uh, group of people. 60 to 70% ends up being in software, all sorts of software. Um, and then 30 to 40% ends up being um, uh, what we used to call science nonfiction, but I think the term is now deep tech. And, and lots of interesting things there. We co-invest with, you know, um, some of the world's um, best investors in, in the later stages across that portfolio. However, we have recognised that our global bias has become a blind, blind spot for us. It's an Achilles heel, for sure. When you want to invest in um, global businesses, it means you're necessarily saying no to local first or local only models because you believe that well, in our case, we believed that um, venture scale outcomes couldn't come from uh, um, something that is the size of Texas, essentially. The population of Australia and the population of Texas is the same. And no one builds a startup for Texas, uh, I, as far as I know. So that is um, mostly logic that um, has held true and, and has served us really well um, by, by you know, some of the logos that you're looking at. But it's also responsible for probably, you know, our m biggest area, which is not investing in Afterpay. Uh, and uh, some of you might know Afterpay was acquired by Square for $30 billion just a, a few years ago. And we can probably come up with another example, which is Airwallocks in, in our second fund. Just um, to uh, make this painfully apparent to you what, what, we, what we missed out on... Um, <laughs> Uh, if we had invested at the first round, um, that holding, even after rounds of dilution, would have been worth $600 million at the time of the merger with Square, assuming we liquidated that. Um, and so that first one would have been a, a gross multiple of almost 70 times. Um, and so it still, doesn't, it still doesn't compete with Canva uh, uh, in terms of um, returns for that fund, but very painful lesson. And it's a reminder, you know, that your heuristics are exactly that. They're not rules. Um, and for exceptional founders, be prepared to make exceptions. And that's, that's all I've got for you. All right, well done. How do companies make the jump, you know, just on a tactical basis, Australian companies to US consumers, or is it just the consumers are the exact same. I think it really depends sector by sector, right? So um, sometimes they're exactly the same. And, you know, our bias is go sell to the world from the beginning. So for most of our companies, they are selling to the US, to Brazil, to all manner of places um, from the beginning. That's a little different for enterprise, right? Um, uh, and and so honestly, that that is the chasm. That is a difficult jump to make and probably why we do have a bias for product-led growth or one where you don't have to have this Rolodex salesperson and, and trust that you've kind of hired the right person in country. Um, but typically, honestly, it requires a founder to just like pick up sticks and move over and um, wrap their arms around it. And what's the competition like, if at all, from American investors coming to Australia to invest in companies? Are they typically, you know, coming once a year and you introduce them to what you've already invested in? Uh, or has anybody kind of set up shop there as it was? Yeah, it's, no one's shut up, set up shop. Their one partner from Sequoia, China, actually um, has a fa his family moved. So, so he's, he's a regular um, fixture on the scene. Over, you know, the last three years, for sure, there were lots of people on lots of planes. And then, of course, as well, you know, we share a common language and, and even similarities in culture. And so I think global investors find it quite easy to kind of in, invest in uh, Australian and New Zealanders, more so potentially where there's a, than where there's a language barrier, for instance. But we've definitely seen that um, the, the retreat, I would say, stage-based. So they were coming down as early as seed uh, two years ago. And now I would say that's, that's adjusting back to sort of n the norms of late Series A to B. They'll let you queue up the companies for them. Yeah, and look, I, I think there's like, 
something to be said for on the ground knowledge, you know, like there are, you know, maybe even some semi high profile Australian founders who, who, who've you know, not um, done terribly well in the last couple of years. And um, there wasn't a dollar of Australian VC in, the, in that company, you know, for a reason. So um, I think there are a few people who are like, oh, once bitten, twice shy, maybe we'll work with a local, a local player, which we love to do. Okay, we'll take a question. I wanted to ask, the Australian ASX is very different to the US public markets, right? We, especially on tech um, companies, you can get, let's say, higher valuations off of early attraction. Why is that? And is that an advantage for exits, do you feel, in investing? It's a good question. Um, it's The best answer I can give you is it's supply-demand. There's, there's far fewer opportunities to invest in technology companies on the ASX, but there's a lot of demand from investors on the ASX, both institutional and retail, to invest in technology. Um, and so, um, that that just um, drives up the appetite and the performance that they can get. I mean, we are, the ASX will be the right place for a handful of our companies, but it's not the place that Canva's going to list, for example. Um, there'll be advantages for some companies for sure, where they have maybe a bigger profile um, or sort of, uh, you know, are earlier in their trajectory. Like, you generally have to be sort of well over 300 million revenue to kind of, you know, you know, get a NASDAQ IPO away. You can be much earlier on your journey um, on the ASX. All right, let's give it up for Sam. Well done.